believe it or not. Strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. Unbelievable? Believe it. Ripley's Believe It or Not. Incomparable, inimitable, illimitable, inestimable, introducer of immeasurable, incalculable, incredible impossibilities. Welcome to Ripley's Believe It or Not cast, the podcast that brings you deep into the strange, the bizarre, and the unusual. I'm Ryan. And I'm Brent. So, Ryan, I've been playing this game on my phone lately called Plague Incorporated. Have you heard of this? Uh, a, a little bit. So, you, the um, the goal is to spread <clears throat> either a bacteria or a virus or, or a, like fungus all around the world, and you have to do it without people noticing it first, and you have to choose the symptoms um, it's it's a pretty dark. Gotcha. <laughs> the goal is to is to wipe right. everybody out on the planet. But it, playing this and then seeing what's happened with the coronavirus is really interesting and and kind of freaky. Um, so it, it, part of part of the game is you will get notifications about whether the Olympics are are happening. Like there's something mysterious about um, they're maybe pausing the Olympics or something like that. Got it. And it's made me wonder about about the Olympics this year. Do you think they're going to happen with the coronavirus? Yeah, I hope so. I mean, it's one of the things I like to watch. It's kind of a family thing. We kind of, you know, sit around and, and watch uh, some of our favorite events. The whole point of this is we have a great, great Olympics story uh, today on the NotCast. And to start it out, we're going to take you back to 1913 to a little town called Oakville, Alabama. It's about an hour southwest of Huntsville. So on September 12th of that year, track legend Jesse Owens was born to sharecropper parents. He was known as JC, but when he told his teachers, his southern accent apparently made it sound like Jesse and the name stuck. Uh, that's right. So uh, times were tough in Alabama, and Jesse took it on odd jobs to make money, even though he also struggled with asthma. Uh, when he was nine, his parents took the entire family and joined more than 1.5 million African Americans as part of the Great Migration North to find work. Uh, the Owenses settled in Cleveland, and it was there in Ohio that Jesse's celebrity would first emerge. So on this episode of the Notcast, we're going to tell the story of Jesse Owens, the unflappable superhuman athlete who represented the United States at the 1936 Olympics. If you can imagine, uh, you have perhaps the world's top athlete, a black man competing on behalf of the U.S. in front of the leader of the Nazi party, the party that promoted an Aryan master race. So if you've seen footage of the 36 Olympics, um, you can see Hitler himself seated atop his own stadium suite watching Jesse Owens win four gold medals and set three world records, um, only to come back to America to face a country that treated him like a second-class citizen. So let's get the full story from author and educator Jacqueline Edmondson, who wrote an autobiography on Owens and now serves as the chancellor and chief academic officer at Penn State Greater Allegheny. Uh, of course, before we get to that famous Olympic performance, uh, we've got to go back to the beginning, right? Back to that small town and then back to Ohio, where a remarkable coach saw Jesse running across a field outside his junior high school. He also had the good fortune of meeting um, a coach named Charles Riley when he was in junior high school. And Charles Riley was the um, 
was the track coach at the time and saw some great talent in Jesse Owens and went on to encourage him to participate in the in the track team. That's how the story goes. He saw him running on the playground and just thought that that he had great talent and potential and and that's when he started to take him under his wing. Charles stayed with him, you know, throughout his career. They they became good friends after Jesse Owens graduated from high school and went on to great success on track. And Charles Cleveland, I think, really had a special connection with him because he realized that Jesse Owens' family was poor. And so he would invite um, Jesse to his home on, on Sunday afternoons to have dinner with his wife. Um, and he just really took a special interest in him. And so after he graduated from high school, Jesse Owens went on to Ohio State. Um, he was very, um, he was breaking NCAA champ records at the time, and he was winning championships. Um, he had four championships each in 1935 and 1936. African-American students were not eligible for scholarships at the time. Oh. Um, they He wanted to go on and get his um get his college degree. Um, they said that his father finally found employment and, and he knew that his family would be supported. But Jesse Owens worked multiple jobs when he was um, a student at Ohio State University. He was not able to live on campus because black students were not allowed to live in the dormitories. Of course, he wasn't able to eat. Um, like even when his track team was traveling, he wasn't able to eat in restaurants with them because of the Jim Crow laws. And so the segregation um, and discrimination that he faced was really remarkable. And the fact that he persevered through that situation and had such victories both at the Olympics and in his life after the Olympics is really pretty remarkable. Here was a national champion athlete representing his university, soon to represent his country, and yet he still wasn't able to get a scholarship or to eat where his peers ate or to stay where they stayed. Jesse was also married with a child by this point in his life, and making the commitment to go to the Olympics was not as easy as it is today. And by that, we mean that there, there weren't airplanes to fly them to Berlin. Instead, the athletes took weeks to get there by ship, in this case, the SS Manhattan. So Jesse kissed his family goodbye and made the long journey to the World Games. Christopher Miller, Senior Director of Education at the National Underground Railroad Freedom Center, tells us more about what was going on in the world at that time. So, so keep in mind, so his upbringing, um, you know, through the 1920s, sure. uh, it, you know, and this being also a milestone year uh, with him being around when uh, when women uh, being enfranchised to get the right to vote and participate mm. in political life. And so you have that going on. You have that movement taking place. Uh, you have organizations such as the NAACP, which is gaining ground. Um, you have the, this groundswell of advancement in this movement, mm -hmm. the early parts of the civil rights movement. You do have, uh, you know, a situation to where uh, the country had a World War I um, uh, that came to a conclusion in um, 1919. Uh, and so you still have um, this residue of the world um countries within the world um leading to uh conflict um but you also have this thought this continuing thought of white supremacy uh, and so when you think of nazis um and, and and within that context you think about what was going on uh in germany it was surrounded with a great deal of white supremacy um but also that aligned with a lot of the views of many uh, of this 
citizens living in this country uh, with ideas of white superiority and white supremacy. And so for Jesse Owens, not only he is combating that on both fronts, domestically was he a, and Was he a hero for the African-American uh, population uh, in that time? Absolutely. For, for the vast majority, absolutely. Uh, you know, you don't want to say that. I'm quite sure there were certain individuals that probably didn't care for him, mm -hmm. uh, whether they were white or black. Um, but for the vast majority, um, I would venture to say yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. he, what he, it was more than just a sport. Right. Um, and so you're talking about, when we're talking about sports, this is coming off the heels of, you know, Jack Johnson and how boisterous he was in being um, uh, uh, the first black heavyweight champion. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so you have these ideas where it's more than sports. These sports, it transcends into the social environment. It transcends into the social realities. Um, and that plays a role in context uh, uh, of what the athletes uh, were, were dealing with. Now, with Jesse Owens, not only was he an athlete, he was also a scholar as well. He was, you know, he attended Ohio State University. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, that presents challenges, uh, you know, of, of just being a student athlete, scholar athlete during that time period, but also competing on such a large stage like the, the Olympic Games. So Hitler and Germany set out to show the world that their nation had recovered from World War One and that white German athletes would dominate the games. Of course, in the 1936 Olympics, Jewish athletes weren't allowed to participate. And, of course, the racism of the Nazi party included bigoted beliefs about African-Americans and specifically African-American athletes. There was very much that idea or that philosophy um, that, OK, yes, you can run, jump faster. But when it comes to your intellectual capacity, um, uh, that's where uh, you fall short. And, and that type of philosophy. And that's something that existed uh, during uh, the period of enslavement. It existed uh, sure. throughout Reconstruction period. It existed through what we would call the nadir of American race relations, uh, the decades of disappointments after the Reconstruction, uh, which uh, this period, uh, 1936, falls within that uh, that time period, the nadir. Sure. So, so you have this idea of, yes, our are African-Americans intellectual and inferior. The situation is that uh, many of African-Americans during that time period did not have the opportunities and access to reveal their intellect. Sure. They were not given that, uh, that opportunity. And so that's why you saw many organizations creating those opportunities. Um, you have the uh, emergence of, you know, black, uh, Greek, organizations being formed sure. uh, throughout this time period and they were about scholarship they were about um, community service uh, were, they were about uplifting the community in many different ways um, from a social standpoint but also from a scholarship standpoint um, you have uh, w uh, web du bois and and you know his ideas with a talented tenth in addressing sure. those ideas of black int uh, intelligence uh intellectuality and, and so forth so yes there were that 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 theme was out there sure. for that but that was something that, that me african-americans had to confront by the time the american athletes arrived at the olympics they saw a calculated scene a germany that looked unified and healthy 
the press had picked up on the idea of Jesse Owens competing against white supremacy. And while some athletes may have felt the weight of the world on their shoulders, Owens gave a historic performance in front of the Fuhrer. But in at least one event, Jesse needed a bit of help from a German opponent. Yeah, that is, it really is such a beautiful story um, because the, the, man's name was Luz Long, L-U-Z-L-O-N-G, Luz Long. And when Jesse competed um, in the preliminary rounds, he struggled a little bit and Luz Long gave him advice and some tips about how to do better. And he ended up actually winning the gold medal for that event, beating out his friend. And then he went on to compete in the 1936 Summer Olympics, which was, of course, the great success of winning four gold medals, which was unprecedented and something that no athlete matched until um, 1984, when Carl Lewis also won four gold medals at the Summer Olympics in Los Angeles. And of course, um, Carl Lewis really admired Jesse Owens. And so that was, I mean, he was a, a big influence and, a, a, you know, somebody that he was looking up to at the time. Yeah. So there's some myths around that. And it's hard to tell exactly what happened. There are some people who say that when Jesse Owens won, Hitler stormed out of the stadium. But then but when you if you follow what Jesse Owens talked about just after the Olympics, he said that he was walking through a part of the stadium and past where Hitler was sitting and Hitler waved at him and Owens waved back. And what's interesting is that there was no way to really verify that. But what happened is after Jesse Owens came back from the Olympics, he was not invited to um, Roosevelt's White House to celebrate his victories. And Roosevelt never sent him a telegram or anything. And so Jesse Owens was in public making statements about how Hitler um, was kinder to him than, than his own president. And so I don't know the extent to which the Germans were invested in that at that particular time or that moment in their history. Sure. Um, but there, there is, um, I mean, Jesse Owens did eventually stay in touch with Luz Long's son. Um, so I think that's also something interesting. There was a documentary that was done in 1966 on the Olympics and um, his, Luz's son's name was Kai, K-A-I, and they're seen together in that film, which is really pretty touching as well. So that friendship extended beyond um, Luz Long's death. As if winning four gold medals in front of the Nazis wasn't enough, Owen's greatest challenge came next, returning home to a country that didn't accept him. Like some of the other people we've explored on this podcast, Jesse Owens made ends meet by performing basically as a sideshow act, doing things like racing against horses at sporting events, a degrading act that he hated. I, I do want to say a little bit more about that. When he came back from, from Germany, there was a ticker tape parade in New York City to welcome him back. And there was a celebration at a hotel in New York, but he was not able to enter the front doors of the hotel for his own celebration. They had to of have- course. Isn't Of that course, that's the way it is. Yeah, I know, sure. isn't that unbelievable? Um, but he did, so after um, the Olympics, he had a difficult time finding gainful employment. And there were promises people made that fell through. Um, and he was of course struggling to take care of his family. And so he worked at a park. Um, he ended up, the, I think people generally know that he ended up racing horses at, at baseball games, um, and which was something that just made him feel terrible. And he commented on that, but 
um, but he did it because he knew he had to he had to provide for his family. Yeah, there weren't professional opportunities in sports like mm-hmm. we see today. The various positions right. that people take after they leave their sport. He went to work in 1942 for Ford Motor Company, and so that was probably his first professional job. So if you figure he was just having jobs that he kind of pieced together from 1936 until 1942, that's a that's a long wow. period of time, right? Um, he was a, an assistant personnel director, and then he later became a director. Um, he stayed with Ford Motor Company until around 1946. Yeah, and then he also started, he opened some of his own businesses. He had a dry cleaning business that um, he opened. Um, he later had to file for bankruptcy. There were some problems with that. But then, um, and and the, as many people may know, he was um, prosecuted for tax evasion. So his life had a lot of ups and downs. You know, he had sure. he had great successes and he had some really hard times. And he just persevered and was so committed to making sure that young people were involved with sport. He um, was part of the um, 1960 Olympics that went to Rome, um, where he was he wasn't there as a coach, but probably for moral support and those sorts of things. Um, he also, of course, famously went to the 1968 Olymp- Summer Olympics in Mexico and um, was not supportive of John Carlos and Tommy Smith um, raising a black fist in the black right. war movement. Um, he he didn't think at that time, Jesse Owens was raised in a, a time where um, he believed that if he, he just worked hard enough, that white people would come to accept him. If he could be better um, or twice as good was the, the way the saying went, um, right, right. That he would be able to change white people's perceptions of black people. But, you know, when he when he didn't support um, John Carlos and Tommy Smith, he he took a, a bit of a beating from colleagues and people across the nation. Some people called him and in quotes, the a, a bootleg boot-licking Uncle Tom, which was a great insult to him. And it caused him to really, I mean, that bothered him a lot and caused him to really rethink his position on how race issues in the United States would change. And then in 1972, he wrote a, well, he had a book that he had published, I forget the year for that, it was called Black Think, where he sort of laid out his position on race. Um, His daughters were teenagers at the time. He had conversations with Martin Luther King Jr. Um, But Jesse Owens did not align himself with Dr. King's views of how the civil rights movement should be, um, and even though Jesse Owens's daughters did. But then by 1972, he published a book that said, I've changed, and he, he changed his position and believed by that point that militancy was needed in order to change race relations in the United States. Let's meet Stephanie Hightower, a former hurdler and former president of USA Track and Field. She's a four-time U.S. champion at 100-meter hurdles and won the 1980 U.S. Olympic trials, but was prevented from competing in the Moscow Olympics due to the U.S. boycott. She also attended Ohio State's track program, and her picture hangs alongside that of Jesse Owens in the state's Athletic Hall of Fame. Growing up, she and many of her peers idolized Owens. At the end of the day, for, for I would say for my era and generation um, of, of, of athletes um, coming up, you know, being born in, in, in the late 50s and, and even today, you know, in, 20, in 2020, you know, Jesse Owens 
he epitomizes um, what all, I think, track and field athletes aspire to be. I mean, his feats and accomplishments during a very um, tumultuous time, not only in the United States as it relates to racism and discrimination, to then going over them being on the um, on the global stage and still facing a different kind of discrimination um, based upon his um, the the country that um, uh, is of his of his birth. He, he just to watch somebody be able to perform at that level, having all of those barriers. Uh, put in front of him it is, you know, I don't think any of us in, in, in you know, if, from now until whenever will face those kinds of obstacles and still be a champion and do it with grace and with dignity and integrity. I just don't, he, he will always be that standout because I don't think anybody else will ever face those circumstances and and, and be able to accomplish what he was able to accomplish. He did it because he wanted to be that ambassador that was someone who um, exemplified um, unity and um, uh, 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 just, you know, uh, inclusion and equity. He, he represented all of those things uh, and, and, and gave back in a way, you know, that in today's world, you know, people would expect to be compensated for the, that kind of time that sure. he would give back. Um, so his, his brand was just so was just so big and, and, and on the global stage, you know, he, he never did waver. And that's what I think was, was is so extraordinary about him. He didn't waver in who he was and his character and his integrity. Um, and and he, he continued to do that even after the Olympics and give back to young people to speak, um, to, to participate at events. And, and just a role model that, you know, we wish there were more of those kinds of people, especially athletes today, that exemplify what he, what he exemplified. Hightower recalls the time she was able to meet Jesse Owens. She was a freshman beginning her career at Ohio State in 1977, while he was the elder statesman of the sport. Owens was still acting as track and field's ambassador just a few years before his death in 1980. It was during my freshman year at uh, The Ohio State University. Um, he came back for an event. And so, as a matter of fact, now you're gonna make me go somewhere and try to dig up that photo. So I did get an opportunity to oh, get a cool. photo with him. And so, you know, just a very kind and gentle, um, gentle soul. And um, again, you know, it's just somebody when he walked into the room, it, it, you knew that it, he was a man of integrity and just, um, uh, just that he was just a man of just real, just real goodness and 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 kind and um and and didn't flaunt his his notoriety um just very authentic i followed every probably from the time i was maybe well i would say the the olympics in 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 munich is when i i gained a consciousness of the olympic movement and when when you talk about the olympic movement you always talk about jesse owens mm -hmm. um 
So he was already in the black community, that, that legend, that icon that we talked about. You know, if you if anybody ran fast, you know, it was always you run like Jesse Owens. So <laughs> so 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 he was that 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 figure in the black community. And if, so if you knew anything about athletics or track and field or just somebody great, Jesse Owens, you know, like, you know, uh, Muhammad Ali, their names came up in, in the black community or Aretha Franklin. And, and those were the names that popped up. So by the time I started in high school. You know, for me, it was Wilma Rudolph and Jesse Owens. Mm -hmm. It was always, it was Wilma Rudolph or Jesse Owens. That's who you wanted to be like. There was a little, I think there's a little thing on ESPN that was like, you know, 40 years since he passed away and still kind of honoring what he had done and his accomplishments, which are still amazing to this day. I mean, he was a Ripley's Believe It or Not in 1936. And he's still a Ripley's Believe It or Not. What do you mean? Like, explain that. What do you mean he was featured as a. I believe, I believe so. Yeah, he was featured in the cartoon. Yeah, yeah, just just for his athletic exploits. And, you know, for me, that's what I thought was so interesting is that as an athletic story, it's amazing. But that's only a fourth of the story, right? I mean, that's just ba that's just barely uh, scratching the surface of what this guy accomplished in, in these weeks in this Olympics. Uh, so there was so much more to that. His friendship with one of his opponents is really um, a kind of a tearjerker kind of part of the story. Uh, and then the kind of not welcome that he got when he came back to America was part of the story that I didn't realize. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, it's one thing. So it's great. It, it's exciting. And it's it's just awesome watching those old clips of – Owen's victories and, you know, sticking it to the Nazis in front of Hitler. I mean, sure. it doesn't get any better than that. But then, yeah, he comes home and and to a racist America and uh, it's tragic. And then and then even that you saw throughout the rest of his life, there is an evolution. You know, there's a country that's really struggling to change. Uh, and I think what's interesting about Jesse Owens himself is that he also had a mindset about and was and was vocal about it. You know, he wasn't somebody like, you know, Michael Jordan who is famous for not talking about issues and things like that. Um, this was somebody who was vocal about that and wrote books about what he thought about the race issues of the day and then also admitted that he was wrong about things that he thought and he evolved as well. It's just a a super fascinating, complex character story, um, and hopefully we did it some kind of justice. And in fact, now uh, it's my understanding that there is a street and a school named after Jesse Owens in Berlin. That is so cool. Okay, we'd like to thank Jacqueline Edmondson, Christopher Miller, and Stephanie Hightower for sharing their stories with us today. So let's talk about another amazing Olympic athlete. Ryan, did you know that one of America's most successful Olympians suffered from polio? It was the late 1800s when Ray Ury contracted the disease as a seven-year-old and ended up being confined to a wheelchair. On our website, ripleys.com, read about how he overcame his illness with his own exercise routine and went on to win eight Olympic gold medals in 1908, a record that lasted more than 100 years. Believe it or not. Find all that and more at ripleys.com. 
We've talked a lot in this episode about the Olympics, and while we're sure you know a lot about the greatest games in the world, here are three facts we guarantee you never knew, or at least never thought about. Number one, Olympic champions last received solid gold medals in 1912. Olympic runners-up can take some consolation in the fact that there isn't much difference between their silver medals and the gold medals awarded to winners. Medals made with pure gold were last awarded in 1912, and winners today receive medals that are 93% silver and 6% copper, with just 6 grams of gold. Champions in the first modern Olympics in 1896 received silver, not gold, medals. The traditional awarding of gold, silver, and bronze uh, to the top three finishers began in 1904. Number two, the summer games used to span months, starting in the spring and ending in the fall. So you think the 17 days scheduled for the upcoming Summer Games is too long? Well, it's nothing compared to the first Summer Olympics staged in London in 1908, which spanned 188 days, or more than half of the year. Although the formal opening ceremonies were not until July 13th, the 1908 Games opened on April 27th with the Rackets competition and ended October 31st with field hockey. The 1900 Paris Games spanned more than five months, and the 1904 St. Louis Games and the 1920 Antwerp Games also lasted nearly as long. Number three, the first Olympian to fail a drug test was busted for drinking beer. Olympic drug testing debuted in 1968, and Swedish pentathlete Hans Gunnar Lijenval was first to test positive for a banned substance. His drug? Two beers he said he downed to, quote, calm his nerves before the pistol shoot. This disqualified him and his teammates, and they were forced to return their bronze medals. So... For as long or as short as the Olympic Games are played, we here at the NotCast will make sure to cover all their amazing stories. Just don't make us take that breathalyzer. No, sir, we haven't had anything to drink tonight. Believe us or not. Ripley's Believe It or Not cast is produced by myself, Ryan Clark, and Sabrina Seek. I edit the show. The Not cast is recorded at the historic Herzog Studio, home of the nonprofit Cincinnati USA Music Heritage Foundation. The Not cast intro theme was put together by Colton Cruz, and our ending theme song is by the band Wussy. If you enjoyed this episode, please go tap that fifth star on Apple Podcasts. If you wouldn't mind doing that, it's a huge help to us. If you have comments, questions, or ideas, email us at notcast at ripleys.com or tweet at ripleys. So if our goal on the Notcast is to bring you deep into the strange, the bizarre, and the unusual, next week's show will not disappoint. Tune in next Tuesday when we introduce you to Tulpamancers, a growing number of people who are trained in the Buddhist tradition of creating an entity purely from their own thoughts. You'll hear from a man who conjures his imaginary friend to life while we're talking to him, essentially giving us two interviews in one. Tulpamancers, that's next week on Ripley's Believe It or Not cast.
Believe it or not.